Uh, Lord, thank you for this piece of scripture uh, that you inspired James to write. Uh, Thank you that it has been preserved for our reading, our hearing, um, our application to how to how to live this Christian life. And as we begin this, Lord, I, I ask that you would give us ears to hear, as you so often said, Jesus, let, let him who has ears to hear listen. So give us ears to hear, give us minds that can understand what it is you're saying to us, and, um, and hearts, mostly, uh, to receive what you say, and, and to put it into action. This is going to be so critical in this series that we, that we put this faith into action. So help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I'll invite you to open your Bibles to uh, the book of James. That's found on page 974 of the Bibles that the ushers just handed out. And we're going to begin right at verse 1 as we begin making our way uh, through this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Uh, I find a lot of people sometimes just read over the, the opening few words of, of letters that are written, um, but there's actually a lot of information that, that we can glean uh, from this. And so it's important, I think, that we uh, understand some things as, as James opens this. The first thing that, that we should notice in verse 1 is that this book is not really a book, it's a letter, right? And we're familiar with that with a lot of Paul's writing. Uh, ancient letters typically began with a, an identification of the sender and then a reference to the recipients, who is this to, and then some kind of a greeting. And some of the greetings get really long. Uh, James isn't real flowery with his speech here. He just says, greetings. Um, um, and and um, knowing that it's a letter uh, gives us uh, some clues as to how to, to read this. Um, there's a specific audience that James is writing to. And what he says to that audience is driven by their current situation. And so that's why so much of this letter comes across as uh, imperative commands. Do this. Okay? And it's really, really strong. The, The very first word of the letter, of course, tells us who it's from. James. Right? Um, that's actually not quite right, uh, because if you lived in the first century and you saw this guy walking down the street and you said, hey, James, uh, he would not turn around. He would not know that you were uh, talking to him. Uh, and that's because James's Hebrew name was Yaakov. Um, in the Old Testament, that may not sound really familiar to you, but we in the Old Testament, we have a, another guy whose name was Yaakov. Uh, he had a brother named Esau. Uh, in English, we say his name as Jacob. Uh, that's James's name, uh, Jacob. So how did we get from Jacob to James? Uh, this, this isn't 
super important, but it's interesting, okay? Uh, it's not going to change how we live, but it, but it is interesting. And, and the way we got from, from Jacob to James all has to do with Bible translations into different languages. So the Greek translation of Yaakov or, or Jacob is Iakobos. Um, when the New Testament was translated from Greek into Latin, Iakobos became Iakamus. Okay? And then when the Bible was translated into French, his name became Gems. When we translated from French to English, we got James. So that's James, okay? I, I thought about calling him Jacob all the way through this, and I, I, that's just going to be too confusing for people. So we'll just stick with, with James, even though he would not know that we were talking about him uh, if, if we called out that name. So who is this Jacob or James? Uh, virtually all Bible scholars agree that, that, that uh, this James is the half-brother of Jesus. There were, there were uh, several Jameses mentioned in the, in the New Testament, uh, but we think this one is the half-brother of Jesus. Um, another half-brother of Jesus is Jude, who wrote another New Testament uh, letter. The Apostle John tells us that Jesus' brothers didn't believe that he was the Messiah during his earthly ministry. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that after his resurrection, Jesus went and visited James, his half-brother. And by the day of Pentecost, James and Jude are are part of the the inner circle of this, this new community of Christians, so um, it, it seems that that the resurrection had everything to do with James actually coming to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, we know from the book of Acts that James became the leader of the early church. Uh, even Paul gave his missionary reports to James. Uh, James is the first name listed among the the sort of pillars of the church in Galatians two nine. Um, he's the one who, uh, in Acts 15, speaks those final um, discerning and, and deciding uh, words about the controversy uh, regarding Gentile Christians and what they would be required to do to be among the, the true people of God. And James is the one that, that Paul meets with when he arrives in Jerusalem for the very last time in Acts 21. Uh, we think that James was the very first New Testament book or letter to be written. Very first one. It's interesting. Uh, probably somewhere between the years of 46 and 48. Uh, just about 15 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now most of this information we get from other places Uh, in the New Testament. What we get from this verse is that James is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's interesting because this is the only place in the New Testament that that language appears. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Now, James was, was a devout Jew, so it's not surprising to us that he would say he's a servant of God. But when he pairs that with servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's doing a couple of things. 
Uh, one, I think he's equating Jesus with God. He's, he's affirming the deity of Jesus. That's why he calls him Lord. And then secondly, uh, he's declaring that his half-brother, Jesus, is the long-awaited Messiah. It's really remarkable. Uh, some people ask, well, if James was the half-brother of Jesus, why doesn't he just say that as he introduces himself? And I think there may be a couple of reasons why. First, a lot of people knew who he was. He was the leader of the, of the church there in Jerusalem. People knew who his family was, his family relationship with Jesus. And so he didn't really need to say that here. But I think probably the main reason he didn't uh, introduce himself that way is because it really wasn't that important to him. His, his, his blood relationship to Jesus wasn't that important. See, what James wants us to know more than anything else about him is that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I was thinking that, that sort of like his half-brother, James didn't regard being the half-brother of Jesus as something to hold on to, as something to be grasped, right? Philippians 2. Instead, he humbled himself to the position of a slave or a servant. That's um, where we see the word servant here. Some translations have slave or bond servant. That's, that's what he's saying. Well, uh, James also uh, tells us in verse 1 who he is writing to. He says, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Uh, The 12 tribes is a reference to the historical origins of Israel that were were made up originally of uh, the the 12 patriarchs, right? Uh, The dispersion or diaspora uh, is talking about the Messianic Jews who had left Israel and were scattered among the nations because of persecution. So very narrowly, we understand that that James is writing to Jewish Christians who no longer live in Jerusalem. Okay, That's his audience. Um, I want to say, though, that that a lot of Bible scholars believe that James is writing actually to a broader audience uh, that is the multiracial or multiethnic church, the people of God that have been grafted in to Israel. There's a, there's a couple of clues later on in his letter uh, that, that sort of imply that, I think, and, and I lean to that understanding, um, which I think is significant because it, it doesn't let us off the hook then. He's not just writing to Jewish Christians, right? He's writing to all of us, and, and we would say that, of course, too, because of how this letter was preserved for us. Um, as we read through the letter, we'll, we'll understand more uh, about uh, the fact that the people James is writing to are facing real hardship. There was a famine going on when James wrote this. Uh, that famine brought poverty, uh, sickness, disease for many. Um, there was also persecution of Christians going on by, by Rome and Orthodox Jews. It was a very, very difficult time for those who professed faith in Jesus as the the Messiah. One other thing I want to mention before we move to verse 2 is this. It has to do with the structure 
of the letter. Some of you, maybe you It's not a big deal to you, but some of you think this way. Okay, what's going on? How is he writing this? What's the structure of this whole thing? It's really hard to know that uh, with James. It's really tough uh, for us to to organize in a a flow or a a way that uh, makes sense. And and part of this is because after verse 1, James doesn't read like a letter at all. It doesn't... Um, so like Paul's letter, it doesn't uh, address specific problems to a specific local church, right? Instead, uh, James is a, is a collection of, of godly wisdom for Jesus' followers. And so it can seem um, sort of random. At times, James has have been criticized as, as not being a very theological book, Okay. But we have to understand that's not really his goal. Uh, Some of the early church fathers treated James as if it was sort of the junk mail of the New Testament. Some didn't even think it belonged in the New Testament. Um, And it it didn't kind of make its way in there until later. But what we have to understand, and and this this is important as we go through the book, James isn't interested in telling people how to become Christians. You know, some of, some of Paul's letters get into that. James not not really concerned with how to become a Christian. He's writing to people who are already Christians. His concern is that he wants Christians to behave like Christians. Okay? Um, Tim Mackey says it this way. James wants to get into our junk and challenge how we live. Ugh. Right? Uh, and he's going to do that with a series of, of short, challenging exhortations that echo Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom of God, especially from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. So as we go through, I'm going to be pointing back to some of Jesus' teaching on this because that's, that's where James got so much of what he's going to be uh, talking about. Uh, Tim Mackey summarizes James by saying that James is calling Christians to become truly wise by living according to Jesus' summary of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Which is, do you remember Jesus' summary of that? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's his summary of the whole thing. And so Mackey argues that that's really what what uh, James is, is getting after here. So that's the intro. A uh, little bit long, but, but it's important, I think, to understand where James is coming from before we get into it. I think it's going to be a really timely uh, book for us to study. Uh, and this could be said of a, a lot of books in the Bible, maybe all of them. But I think it's especially true here with James uh, if we, as a church, as individuals, and collectively, uh, would commit to doing what James tells us to do, it would transform this church. And uh, I think it would have a transforming effect on our community. I really, really do. And I think James does too. I think he believes that with with all of his heart. So, that's verse 1. Let's move on. Verse 2. 
James says, my brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. So the first command that James gives in his letter, and it, it is a command, it's, it's really strong, doesn't waste any time getting flowery and kind of easing into it. James, to the 12 tribes, greetings, boom, here we go, right? His first command is to view trials as an opportunity for joy. Some translations say pure joy, some say all joy, some say great joy, they all mean the same thing. For the Christian, James says, hardship is an opportunity for joy. Pure joy. And, and while the, the trials that, that come seem to be ones that catch you by surprise, he says trials that you fall into, uh, the joy isn't something we fall into. The joy isn't something that just sort of magically happens as we go through trials. When James says to consider it joy, he means that we are to make a deliberate, careful decision to have joy in the middle of hardship. Can we do that? Is that possible? Uh, Kent Hughes uh, writes one of the commentaries that I uh, use. He asks this question, has James lost his ever-loving mind? He's writing to beat up Christians and says, count it all joy when you fall into trials. How nice, he says. A letter of encouragement from Pastor Wacko. See, not all commentaries are stuffy, so, you know. These guys have a sense of humor, too. But here's what we know if, if we're reading our Bibles. Uh, even if James was the first one to put this in writing, he wasn't the first to teach this. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. And say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on account of me. Rejoice. Be glad. Because your reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. How many of you feel blessed or happy when people say evil things about you that aren't true? It's not easy, is it? I had it happen this week. And I want to tell you, feeling joyful was not my first reaction. Right? Something in us that wants to lash out. The Apostle Peter wrote about the same thing. In 1 Peter 4, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have that 
wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Passage that Ben read for us earlier. But it's not just these two places. The list really goes on and on. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul said, In all our affliction, I am overwhelmed with joy. In Acts 5, we read that when the Sanhedrin called the apostles in, they beat them, and then they told them, warned them not to speak the name of Jesus. And those apostles left the council rejoicing. After being beaten and told not to speak about Jesus, they left rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Philippians 4, Paul tells the persecuted believers, we're so used to that language. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're dialed in at all to what's going on uh, globally with the persecuted church, places where it's illegal to become a Christian, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people Christians being killed every year in some of these places. North Korea is, is at the top of the list, year after year. It's horrible. Paul writes to such Christians in Philippians 4, and he tells them, rejoice in the Lord, always. You see, all the way through the New Testament, we have Jesus and his followers teaching that the kingdom that in the kingdom of God, facing hardship is an opportunity to see yourself as blessed or full of joy. Now, why is that? And, and how can we do that? Verse 3. Because, James says, you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James says, you know this you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And some of you might say back to him, no, I don't. That's backwards. That's not the way things work in my life. Actually, I think we do know this. We know it in some some other areas of life. Years ago, a friend of mine and I bought a membership to a gym we were going to get in shape. Uh, after a, a, a year of having a membership and not going once to the gym, we canceled our memberships. We said to each other, we can do this by ourselves. We don't need no, gym. We don't need no stinking gym membership. So we went running once. I don't remember what our excuse was for quitting that um, regime, regimen. Uh, we tried uh, jumping rope together. Our wives laughed so hard, they, they, they had tears coming down their faces. They, they were crying. So let me ask you, how much physical endurance did, did my friend and I develop? Uh, from that regimen of exercise? Well, I mean, you can look and see, right? None. None. And we know this. We know this is sort of a basic law, right, of, of life. You don't exercise a muscle, it atrophies. Faith is a muscle. Faith is a muscle that can develop 
endurance and, and strength. It, it grows stronger when? When it's stressed, when it's tried, when it's tested. So like the person who does go running and, and recognizes, hey, I can run farther and faster than I could a year before, or like the person who, who does lift weights and recognizes, hey, I'm able to lift more than I could last year, we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. We can have a deeper, stronger faith because of the trials. That's why James says, you know this, right? You do know this, okay? Now, most of us say we want to grow in our faith, but then we spend our energy trying to avoid hardship. That's like me buying a gym membership, right? I say I want to get in shape, and then I do everything I can to avoid going, right? And so in, in the realm of faith, what ends up happening is we got a lot of people with flabby faith. James calls us to endure the trials, not to escape them. Not to keep looking for ways. Why is this happening to me? Right? And when, and I think this is important, when those trials uh, come in the form of how people treat us, uh, James tells us not to respond in kind, not to lash out, not to be the bigger bully, but to persevere under it. And that was a very real issue to the people that he was writing to. There were people that thought, we'll, we'll be the strong, we'll fight, we'll, um, we'll show them, we'll show Rome, right? It's what they wanted Jesus to do. Jesus said, oh no, 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 no. That's not the way. That's not the way of the kingdom. So, testing of our faith produces endurance, but endurance isn't the goal. It's not the end goal. It does happen, but it's not the end goal. The joy James instructs us to have is not just in in the growth of endurance. As we read on into verse 4, James tells us to let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. The, uh, the, the word perfect in verse 4, the Greek word under our English word, is teleos. Uh, it, it speaks of a goal, uh, of, of the rightful purpose uh, of something. Uh, the way James uses it, uh, he uses it in the sense of, of living a completely integrated life where your actions are consistent with your beliefs. That's the way things should be, he says. And, and, and teleos is a, is a key word for James. James uses that word more than any other New Testament writer. He, he uses it sort of in the sense of spiritual formation into the likeness of Christ. So if Jesus was the perfect human, and he was, our, our teleos, our, our goal, our purpose, what we are designed for, is to be like him. And God is working that 
in us. Right? That's his goal for us. And one of the tools in his toolkit is trials. Ugh. Right? Any of you faced hardship? Um, we may not be in the same kind of persecution that the early Christians were or that Christians today in places like Nigeria and North Korea and other places around the world. Um, we're not in the middle of a famine like the Christians James was writing to were. Um, but Bible scholar Douglas Moo says that when James writes all sorts of trials, he's sort of broadening it out to all of the hardships that we face. Philip Yancey says that everyone lives out a unique script of hardship. That's why it's so dangerous when we say, oh, they don't know how hard I have it. They... They've got it so easy. But we do that, don't we? We don't, we don't understand that every person, every person in this room has got a script of hardship that they are living that we don't always understand, right? Some of you here this morning do face food insecurity, even though we're not in a famine. Some of you are facing disease or loneliness or grief or disappointment. Some of you are, are facing slanderous attacks from people. Some of you have had trials in your family that feel like they're almost too hard to bear. I don't know if I can do it. And all of these things, James says, are trials that we are to endure with joy because they can, if we will let them, make us more like Jesus. If we lose sight of that in the trial, it's only bad. It's only hard. If we keep Jesus in sight, we can see that there's actually a good work that that, that God is doing through this. I, I was thinking that maybe the words from the writer of Hebrews give us one of the most tangible ways to do this. It says, let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. So again, endurance, right? We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, so Jesus did this, okay? Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured hardship, Yeah, he endured what? The cross. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. Jesus did this. He's our example in this. So as I I close this morning, I want to suggest that James gives us four benefits, and and three of them are in in verse 4. Um, to enduring trials like like Jesus did. First, in verse 4, James says that this will perfect us. There's that word teleos. Uh, Another way to say it would be it it matures us. It makes us more like Jesus. 
See, to, to be a mature Christian means that you're like Jesus. That's what it means. That's the goal. It doesn't mean that you've memorized more Bible verses than anyone else. It doesn't mean that you have a better church attendance than, than anyone else. It means that you are like Jesus. And the testing of our faith produces this in us. Second benefit, also in verse 4, is that we will be complete or whole. I've been following Jesus for a long time. I'm not complete yet. I'm more complete than I was a year ago. And actually, if I'm honest, I can tell you that trials have helped accomplish that. Uh, This is an ongoing work that God is doing in us if we will allow it, if we will persevere under it. So the testing of our faith uh, makes us mature. It makes us complete. Thirdly, um, uh, verse 4 says that, that we will be lacking in nothing. What does that mean? Well, maybe, maybe it means this. Uh, the immature people say, I just want this thing or, or that thing. I just need this or that, right? They want this hardship or trial to go away. I, I just want to be done with this. The mature person in, in the middle of, of that trial says, you know what, actually, I'm Okay. In Jesus, I actually have everything I need. See, so it becomes kind of a perspective thing. The the fourth benefit uh, that I see, we have to kind of jump out of these first four verses, but it's it's connected. Uh, Down in verse 12, James says, God blesses those who patiently endure trials and temptation. And afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Which is, which is even more forward-looking than the maturing, perfecting, lacking in nothing that James promises in, in this life. This, this looks out to a future when Jesus returns. Uh, this, is, this is what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter. Um, Chapter 4 that, that we read earlier. Uh, this, is, this is for the person who perseveres, who endures. There's a crown waiting. Friends, life is full of hardship. And none of us like it. Don't, don't, uh, don't mistake what James is saying. James is not saying that we need to just put on a happy face and say, oh, I just love these trials. They fill me with such joy. No, they don't. They fill us with pain. They fill us with fear. Uncertainty. Sometimes even panic. But we consider 
them pure joy because they give us the opportunity to become more like Jesus. That's where our joy is. And this is the beginning of James's letter. This is the beginning of experiencing a faith that really works. It really works. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this perspective that James uh, brings. And it's, it's not... Uh, it's not rose-colored glasses. It doesn't, it doesn't ignore the hard in life. But it gives us a way of looking through the hard in life, like Jesus did, to the joy that awaits us. We can have joy now because of what awaits us. And what awaits us is becoming more and more like Jesus. So Lord, whatever that trial is that each of us are facing today, we invite you to use it in our lives to make us more like Jesus. Holy Spirit, help us to endure, to persevere. Help us somehow to see through to the end, to the goal. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.